Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles out and open them to John chapter 16. I hope you brought a Bible, and if you didn't, it's okay. I know you brought your phone, okay? So get your phone out too and open or turn your phone to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we're, we've been going through this uh, portion of the, of the book of John and, and from the chapter 15, and we're going to finish through the end of this book, uh, probably about mid-April. And uh, if you remember where we are, we're at the place where everything is kind of building to a climax. How many of y'all like movies? I love movies. We, we don't watch a lot of movies at home all the time. We do watch them from time to time, and we watched a couple uh, this weekend. And, and uh, how, many, how many of y'all like Star Wars? I know it's... Yeah, John is like mm, trying to jump out of his chair. Star Wars is great. I remember when I was uh, growing up, we had Star Wars uh, on, on VHS, and, and uh, we would watch those, I mean, it seemed like at least three or four times a year because there was no better movies than Star Wars. Even though there was good stuff coming out, Star Wars was still man, amazing. And then when I was about 17 or 18, they came out with a new Star Wars movie. My mind was like... Phew. I thought they were never going to make another one. It was amazing. They came out with the, uh, the, um, the first one, the prequel. Yeah, it's, I can't remember the name of it off the top. The Phantom Menace. There you go, Benjamin. He, I can depend on Ben. The Phantom Menace, episode one. And one of the best parts about most movies that are really great movies is the music. Now, John Williams is the masterful uh, uh, mind and, and effort behind the beautiful music of Star Wars. And the great thing about John Williams is he knows how to set the tone. He knows how to build a crescendo. And as you're watching those movies, you, you can feel it. You can feel things building. You can see how things are building to a tremendous and amazing end. Something dramatic is about to happen. In that movie, they have a song that's called The Duel of the Fates, and it's one of the most uh, powerful and amazing uh, songs or scores that have been written for film. It's amazing. And so right right now, though, here, while we're in the text of John, in chapter 17, the music is building. Things are crescendoing. The music has changed, and, and something dramatic and amazing is about to happen. And in this moment, in this moment of power and change, Jesus stops and he prays. And I, I want us to look at his prayer. We're going we're gonna to go through verse 1 through 19 today and we'll finish the chapter next week. But let's look at what he prays through these first 19 verses. First, we're just going to look at these first six verses. It says, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. I got to stop right there. <laughs> I got to stop right there. Because if you if you'd go back to John chapter 2, you'll see uh, where he began his earthly ministry. Guess what he said at the beginning? The hour has not yet come. In fact, many times throughout his ministry, he says those exact words. The hour has not come. The time has not arrived. But where is he now? He's saying, the hour has come. It is, the time is now. And this is what his prayer is. He says, glorify thy son. Who's his son? Who's the father's son? 
Jesus is. Yeah, I'm glad y'all are listening. Good. All right, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto, uh, unto men, which thou gavest me out of the world. We're going to stop right there. The first thing that Jesus prays is, glorify me, God. Glorify me. Uh, this is not a prayer that any of us have any right to pray. Nobody in this room, nobody that's ever lived in history has the right to pray to God and say, God, would you glorify me right now? It's absolutely, that's right, brother. It's impossible. It's unconscionable. There's only one who deserves all glory. Only one. And it is only God. And Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the living embodiment of God. He's the revealing of God to the world in the flesh. He is is God. Jesus is God. He is fully and completely divine. He is one with the Father and is worthy to receive man's worship, affection, and allegiance. He is the only one who has the right to pray such a prayer to be glorified. Now, let's talk a little bit about glory. I looked up a, a, a biblical definition of glory as the noun. We have a noun and a verb version of both of these here, but there's a noun, it, it's, it's in reference to his majesty or his splendor. D.A. Carson, who's a, a wonderful commentator, called it uh, that God's glory is his display of divine goodness. I like that. I like that because it nails it down a little, a little closer to where I'm at. <laughs> I have a hard time imagining his majesty and his splendor, but I can certainly imagine his goodness because I experience it every day. God's glory is a, is a revealing or a, a display of his divine goodness. Now, to glorify the verb is the adequate response to God's goodness. Can I get an amen? Y'all need to wake up a little bit here, okay? Jesus is praying for God to to glorify him. And so when Jesus prays to be glorified, he wants his glory displayed. He wants his goodness on display. and, And he wants his goodness to be celebrated. And so when Jesus is praying this, though, it means his goodness must be seen and celebrated. And for God to answer this request means that the greatness of Jesus will need to be understood and acknowledged. There's a big problem with this request, though. Because what we're talking about, this crescendo, how everything's building to this incredible uh, world uh, universe-changing moment. What is that universe-changing moment? It's the cross. And the cross, well, historically before this, it was never a place of glory. 
It was never a, a place of, of, of a display of someone's goodness. The cross was for someone who's to be cursed. In fact, uh, Galatians 3.13, Paul wrote to that church, he said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus is about to be cursed for the whole world. I mean, the cross is not just an instrument of torture, and it was a very skillful instrument of torture, but it is a sign of God's displeasure, His wrath on sin. Jesus, in that whole experience, in, in, in that, uh, that historical moment, you'll see Him be disgraced and rejected. I mean, this is not a moment that you would think needs to be glorified. How can God make this curse into praise and rejection into applause and and celebration? Well, I think the answer is in verse 5 that we just read. What did Jesus say? He said, Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. You may not pick up on it. Let me tell you what he's doing. God is going to restore Jesus to the position he had with the Father before the foundations of the world. Jesus, his goodness, which was on trial, his goodness which had been uh, rejected and and disgraced by the uh, accusations of men, false accusations of men, was going to be vindicated by his resurrection. Jesus' divine goodness was going to be on full display by God exalting him above all others. uh, Jesus' uh, divine goodness (laughs) will be celebrated. Hey, I hope it's been celebrated this morning here in our church. But it's going to be celebrated forevermore with the consummation of all things. When Jesus comes and and returns and, and, and sets all things to rights. Jesus, his divine goodness is going to be what it's all about. He's going to be glorified. Revelation 5.12, it says, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Listen, that's what we're going to be singing and praising. That's what we're going to be living our, our eternal life doing is worshiping God, worshiping Jesus, praising Him. And why? Well, what has He done? Why, why would we do that? Look at verse 2 and 3. Thou hast given him power over all flesh that he may give, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The cross may be a sign of God's displeasure, but it is the instrument of Jesus' glorification. Jesus is the perfect display of God's goodness. Because the cross of Jesus is the perfect display of God's goodness. Uh, In Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews, Jesus is described as the brightness of his glory. 
Jesus is the perfect display of God's glory and goodness. And that was displayed fully on the cross. I mean, think about what takes place on the cross, what is revealed to us there. I mean, he's, he's willing to go to the cross and to bear the sin of all men and to conquer death and then to gain eternal life for all mankind. I can't think of anything more praiseworthy than that. But there at the cross, we see God's wrath and his love. We see his justice and his mercy. We see everything about God that is, glory, that is glorious. And it's all intention as Jesus hangs on the cross between earth and the sky. You know, uh, there, there's other world religions that worship, uh, they say, the God of, of this Bible. Uh, the three probably major religions in this world are Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. But these other religions, and I, I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but I believe what the Bible says is true. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. That means no one is even going to be able to see and understand the glory of God without Jesus. They're missing it. They're missing it completely. He is the center of all things. We were talking this morning in my, my Sunday school class how this book is a, 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 it's 66 books. It's over 40 authors. But all of it points to one individual and one story of redemption. That is the story of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can't understand and experience the glory of God without Jesus. You can't experience salvation without Jesus you can't experience eternal life without Jesus. That's what he said he came to do in verses 2 and 3. He said, this eternal life that they might know thee and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou sent. Listen, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you need to know him. We're all searching for something in this world. We're all searching for some kind of meaning for our life and some kind of value to our life. We, we go everywhere trying to find it. We, do, we try to find it in relationships, in our careers, in leisure, and adventure, and exploring the world. All of these things are good things. God made these things. But ultimately, what he wants us to find is him. And as long as we look everywhere else, we're going to feel empty and lost and if you're here and you've, you've never met Jesus, you never trusted him, truly trusted him, I, it's no wonder that you might feel lost at times. Because he's the only way to be found. Jesus came that we might know God. Why would you want to know God, Brother Darren? Well, believe it or not, I'm going to die someday. I'm 40. I'm a man. I'm 40. Anybody get that? No, it's okay. I'm healthy, I think. I got three beautiful sons, a beautiful wife. I got lots to live for. My life, I mean, I'm at the, I'm at the prime of my life. Oh, well, in some ways, you know. But someday I'm going to die. This body is going to get old. It's going to get tired. It's going to... It's going to start breaking down or something tragic is going to happen and my life is going to be snuffed out. But guess what? God didn't make me to live just this vapor of a life that's here on earth. This is a temporary uh, pilgrimage through, through this part of my life. But I have an eternal life ahead of me. God made each of us with an eternal soul. In, John, in the book of Genesis, it says that he breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Listen, everybody has eternal life. 
That means if you're here today and you're breathing, or if you're not breathing, by the way, you have eternal life. The question is, is what's after that? There's only one person whose opinion matters in that question. It's not Elon Musk's opinion. It's not CNN's opinion or Fox News's opinion or anybody else. It's not anybody's opinion except for God's opinion. God is the one who, who made you, who orchestrates where we spend eternity. And if you want to experience the glory of God instead of the wrath of God, instead of only the wrath of God, you better look towards the cross. Look towards the cross. I hope you're, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down here. Jesus is the perfect display of God's goodness because the cross is, of Jesus is the perfect display of God's goodness. Nobody can understand the true glory of God without the cross. I find it interesting, and we see it in this passage here. We see it in many passages where we see Jesus' words. That the main interest, the, the number one priority for Jesus is God's glory. Now, I'm going to speak to church members and believers here for a minute. Jesus, who came to live as an example for all disciples. I mean, people who have trusted Jesus Christ are by definition disciples of Christ, or they're meant to be. And a disciple is meant to follow their master. Jesus is the master. We're the disciples. His example, we're supposed to follow. His example is, his number one priority is the glory of God. So for us to live our life without that being our number one priority is for us to fail as disciples. Our life is to point continually to Jesus. Our triumphs, our failures, our strengths, our weaknesses, our struggles, all the difficulties and circumstances of our life, all the, all the way we spend our time, all the way we spend our, 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 our resources, they're all to point to God. How else are we going to be able to show this lost and dying world the need of a Savior? We can preach. We could try to get them to come in here and listen to me preach, but they're probably not going to hear it as well as you are. They're going to get tired of hearing Darren fuss at them, and they're going to go home and say, forget that guy. I'm going to go get Taco Bell. Do something I enjoy. They're not going to see their need for a Savior without seeing it in your life. Our life is to continually point towards God. Let's continue our prayer here. What Jesus is praying, verse 6. Look at what he says next. He said, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest to me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. Now they have known all, uh, that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they which receive them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine. And thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, 
that they may be one as we are. What is his prayer? Uh, the first thing he asks God is to glorify him. He says, glorify me. Please glorify me. What is, what is his next thing he's praying for? Keep my disciples. God, Father, would you keep my disciples? Would you, would you protect them? These disciples, it's interesting how they're described. He says, you have given them to me. I'm going to try not to step in any muddy holes here, okay? This can get messy if someone isn't careful. I, these are people who belong to God, and now they belong to Jesus, according to Jesus. By the way, who's Jesus? God, okay. All right, so we're on the same page. They're meant to now follow this earthly Jesus. These are not people that have been chosen specially out of the world that God has just decided, hey, I'm going to pick out these few and the other ones, I don't really want them. I just want these guys. No. These guys weren't chosen for any special reason or purpose. But these were chosen. They were chosen for a, a purpose, but they weren't chosen for anything in them. But... I believe in Ephesians helps us to understand this, that everyone who is in Christ is one of the chosen. There's a difference here. Because if they're chosen just arbitrarily by God, then that would mean people that are chosen to Christ. You follow me? We're not talking about any kind of Calvinistic uh, belief that's being brought out of the Scripture here. I don't believe that at all. Ephesians talks about those that are in Christ. So that means these guys, have they, they were called. Remember, they were called. Jesus came to many of them. He said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men or come and follow me. Well, could they have said no? Yeah, absolutely. They could have looked at Jesus square in the eye and said, you're nuts, man. I got work to do here. I got kids to feed. Uh, my dad expects me to show up to work tomorrow. I can't go, sorry. M maybe next time. In fact, there's many people we see throughout the scripture that told Jesus those exact things. The rich young ruler, he, he wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus told him how to do it, and the guy said, ah, man, I wish I could, but I just, I don't think I can do that. He was too attached to things in the world. He was too attached to that which was temporary. And these men, for some reason, in their hearts, they decided, I'll follow this man. Because they put their faith and their trust in him, now they are in Christ, and they are the chosen, the preordained of God, the predestinated. Everybody who's predestinated is those that are in God. But there's nowhere in there where it talks about how they did anything. Let me see if I can give you a, a good illustration this morning about this. We have three beautiful sons. We talked about this. I have Benjamin over here. I got John John back there. And over in Children's Church, we got little Charlie. Five-year-old Charlie, who is bright as a sunny day and a cloud of rain all at the same time sometimes. And if you saw Charlie, we had, if I had Charlie right here in front of us, I, we could ask him a few questions about things going on with him today. You would see that Charlie has had a haircut. 
You could say, Charlie, did you get yourself a haircut? You could go, yeah, yeah, I got a haircut. You, you could see that Charlie is dressed in a nice button-up shirt. He's dressed nice for church today. And, uh, and you could ask him, Charlie, you got your nice clothes on for church today, right? Yeah, yeah, I got my nice clothes on. Charlie, this, you look like you're, you're well-fed. You, did you have breakfast this morning? Yeah, yeah, Charlie had breakfast this morning. But do you think Charlie might forget to tell us where all that came from? You know, Charlie got a haircut. He got a haircut yesterday. Mama gave him a haircut yesterday. She did it for him. Uh, this morning, he, he is dressed. John, Charlie can dress himself most of the time. If you let him pick out his own clothes, he'll look really funny. Uh, so we don't do that very much, especially on Sundays. But he dressed himself most of the way, but he got to that button-up shirt, and he just, I remember he was just like, like could not figure that thing out. He was crying at the same time, too, because Mama was leaving. So I helped him out, and I buttoned his shirt for him. But he's dressed in his nice shirt. You know what? Breakfast. He didn't cook his own breakfast this morning. Do you understand? Like he's received all these blessings. He's had these, he's, he's been able to experience these blessings, but it's not all because of him. Listen, I'm saved, but it's not because of me. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ and you have eternal life and you know that in your heart, let me tell you, it's not because of you. It's because God did it all. God did it all. God not only did it all, he he did it through his word. I think that's important for us to understand. He did everything uh, that he does. He did it through his word. The disciples, it's, it says in this passage, in verse 6, he says, And they have kept thy word. Well, disciples have kept the word, but who gave the word? God gave the word, okay? They, they came from God. Uh, they, they believed on Jesus. Who sent Jesus? Yeah, God sent Jesus. And, and earlier in this book, John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son. Listen, it was God who provided Jesus. It's God who's provided his word. And so everything that they've received, everything that they've experienced, all the change in their life has been from God. They can't do it without him. I can't do it without God. I can't stand here on Sunday morning and fumble through my notes without God. In fact, they did a lot better job whenever I depend on him. God brought them to faith through his word, not by any other means. And it's the same for each of us. If you've trusted Christ, it's through his word. It's not based on any kind of feeling or, or kind of some kind of emotional experience. That's not going to save you. I, I wish I could tell you something different. I wish it was, it was less exclusive, but it's God's word that saves us. It's the story, it's the, it's the reality of the cross of Jesus revealed to us in his word. And the need for us to trust, put our faith in him, revealed to us through his word. It's not through any emotional experience. It's not through any spiritual upheaval in your life. It's not through a song on the radio when you're driving down the road and the good feeling it gave you. It's the faith in Jesus Christ revealed to us in the word of God. God has done it all. He did the work, and he did it through his word. But in these last few verses, he says, Now I am no more in the world. He's asking God to do something. Keep my disciples. He said, Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. So I come to thee, my father. Keep 
through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. That's where he's saying, keep my disciples, that they may be as one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I, keep, I kept uh, them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them I lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's speaking of Judas. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them thy word, and the, wor- the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they, might, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Just a few thoughts I want to share. I see four things that he's making request about as far as God, the Father, keeping his disciples. And, and I want to kind of help us understand how God is going to succeed in doing this, okay? God is not going to fail. Amen. God does not fail, okay? But we can, we can uh, hinder him in our flesh. We can allow our flesh to hinder him. Uh, how many of y'all have ever been on a rowboat? Yeah, rowboat. How many of y'all been in a, in a rowboat race? Or like a rowing competition. It's not something we really do down here in Texas much, okay? You know, if you're in a rowboat, you've probably got a fishing rod with you, okay? But if you see these, these college athletes, it's a big thing in uh, many colleges, especially up north in the East Coast. They have these, uh, these rowing competitions, a big uh, collegiate sport. But you watch those guys, they're in perfect unity. They're in unison. Uh, they're, the oars that they're, they're using... They all the goal is for their oars to touch the water at the same time, push through the water, and then rise out of the water at the same time. I mean, the more unified they are, the more, uh, the faster they're going to be, the more successful they are going to be. And of course, those guys got to be fit. They got to be strong so they can endure and go through that. But ultimately, they've got to keep everything in unison. But there's one member of that team who doesn't handle the oars. There's one guy. In fact, uh, I learned a word. Y'all ready? Brother Darren learned something. Praise the Lord. Y'all are just, y'all are feeling that spring forward, aren't you? There's a guy on that boat. He's called the coxswain. Now, if you've been in the Navy, you might know that term for a different reason. But the coxswain is the guy who's in charge. Now, when they're rowing, which direction are they facing when they're rowing? Have you ever seen what I'm talking about? There's a long, narrow rowboat. There's usually several men lined up in a row, and they're rowing, okay? And then there's a guy sitting with them. That's the coxswain. Which way are the guys who's rowing? Which way are they facing? They're facing backwards, aren't they? Are they watching where they're going? Are they paying attention? What's ahead? Hey, we're about to hit a rock, right? Hey, what? are they doing much of this? No. Where are their eyes? Their eyes are on the coxswain. Because that coxswain, what he's doing is he's, he's giving them orders. He's giving them instructions. He's telling them how to stay in sync. He's telling them, uh, hey, uh, what, what's coming up next? If there's a change that needs to be made so they can adjust their course, he's the one who's in charge. And their job is to keep their eyes completely on him the entire time. 
Because if they take their eyes off of him, they get distracted. They start worrying about what's, what's coming down the road. They turn and look over their shoulder. Guess what? They're going to get out of sync. They're going to be out of unity. They're going to fail. I try to point myself and all of us to Christ all the time if I can. I mean, that's my job. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm failing. Where are our eyes? The first thing, I said there's four things. The first thing we see that Christ requests is in verse 11. He said, I kept them in thy name. Oh, excuse me, that's verse 12. He said, keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one. Jesus, Jesus wants us believers to be at unity. He wants us to strive in unity. He wants to be the coxswain of our life. And, and in the boat of the church, he wants all the church members to keep their eyes on him. And then he'll give us direction. He'll give us all the, all the information that we need. And he won't give us any more than we don't need. He'll give us exactly what we need. And if we'll just do what he says, we will have unity. And not only unity uh, like we experience in the world I'm talking about some pretty amazing type of unity. He says in verse 11, Keep them through thine own name, that they may be one. How? As we are. He's talking to the Father. He's talking about how he and the Father are one. The unity that it, they experience. He wants, he wants God to provide for them unity that mirrors the unity between the Father and the Son. Let me tell you, there's nothing more beautiful and powerful than I can imagine describe unity. I mean, there's tons of, of illustrations I could use to describe unity, but there is no tighter, more intimate, more perfect unity than the unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Jesus is asking the Father to keep us that we might have the same type of unity. Do you think Jesus would ask the Father to do something that the Father cannot do? No. He's asking them He's asking the Father, give them unity like you and I have. And the Father can answer. But I'm going to tell you, we must all keep our eyes on the coxswain. Psalms 133. I can't talk about unity without talking about this verse. Maybe I should, I don't know. Beautiful passage. Song of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he describes it. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard and even Aaron's beard that went down onto his skirt and his garments. Now you, I know you're not like desiring that somebody pour oil over your head this morning, but what he's describing is something beautiful and wonderful. Listen, I, I praise God that we're a church generally of unity. I, I, as a pastor, I don't deal with a lot of disunity. Man, that is a blessing to me. So I'm not inviting you to challenge that any, okay? Uh, but, but, you know, as God leads us, if we'll get our eyes up, I, I'm afraid sometimes we might be in unity in our comfort. And we put our head down and we just kind of focus on our own things and, and we don't get too divided because we're not really trying to go anywhere. Our, our rowboat is meant to go somewhere. It, it has a path it's supposed to travel. It's got a race that's supposed to run. And if we're not trying to go anywhere, then yeah, it's going it's to be pretty easy to stay unified. 
But if we start looking up, (laughs) we better all be looking up for that unity to maintain. Second thing, second thing. Verse 13, I think he wants his disciples to experience joy. We talked about this real recently. He says, verse now, he said, verse 13, now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We talked about joy. How are you going to have joy? The joy of Jesus? I'll just, I won't re preach the sermon I preached uh, last week about this. Uh, let me tell you where you're going to find joy God's Word. You're going to find it in God's Word. Uh, last week I talked about, uh, in the afternoon, for those of you who weren't here, we talked about the about revival, not just about the Asbury revival, but because in light of revival, we talked about uh, uh, in, in light of the Asbury revival, we we talked about revival and and you know there's a lot of circumstances that come in our life that want to derail us from joy and revival and a good relationship with God. You know how you inoculate yourself against that? Spend time in God's Word. There's no better way to spend your time. Uh, let's, there's lots of ways that the world will tell you you can spend your time and it'll be profitable to you. You can go to work. It's a, I mean, that's a profitable way and a good thing to spend your time. There's, you can do your taxes and it might be profitable or maybe not. I don't know. If you owe taxes, it might, uh, might not be profitable. But so many good things you can do. There's nothing more profitable than spending time in God's Word. It will give you peace and joy like you've never understood before. Because that's where you find God. That's where you find God's goodness. That's where you find His promises. That's where you find what to live for and how to live. Spend time in God's Word. Third thing, verses 14 and 15, He says, And I have given them thy word. Surprise. And that the world hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from evil. God asked the Father to keep, uh, to protect us. To protect us, uh, not just from the world, but protect us from turning away from Him. I mean, He's talking about uh, uh, protecting us from evil, but you know, the easiest thing for a disciple, what is the easiest thing for a disciple to do? Turn away from the truth. Because the truth is divisive. The truth is going to make life difficult if you try to live by truth. Because this world hates the truth. And that's the reason why these guys experience the kind of hatred that they experience. That's the reason why when you try to live for truth at your job or wherever you are in the world or in the political realm, not that I love politics or all, but we're supposed to shine wherever we're planted. We're supposed to bloom wherever we're planted. The reason why the world hates us is because they hate the truth. Easy for the disciple to turn away from the truth. He didn't want that. And the last thing, those last, uh, almost last couple of verses, 17 and 18, he says, Sanctify them. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. God has left us here for a reason. He left these disciples. I mean, these were real guys. We know their names. We know much about many of them. Some we know less, but they were real dudes, real guys. 
who, who Jesus had spent time with and taught them and, and, and had left with them a mission. But those guys, just like me, were going to die. Many of them, almost all of them, died a martyr's death because of the kind of life that they lived for God. But they were all going to die whether they lived a, died a martyr's death or not. So that meant they had to make more disciples. Churches. One church begat more churches. We can go to the book of Acts and look at that. I don't have time this morning to do that. The reason why we're here is because we're to continue the mission that he left us to do. He's asking the Father, sanctify them. I've left them in the world. Set them apart for a special purpose and help them to complete that purpose. That's what he wants for you and me. But all four of these things that I I believe that he wants for us, he wants us to have... um, Unity and and the joy of Jesus. He wants us to be protected from turning away from the truth. He wants us to be sanctified for God's special purposes. All of these things, guess what? None of them are going to happen if our eyes are down here. We're going to have to keep them on him. I don't know what what need you have in your life today. I don't know what God is trying to do in your life, but I know this. We need more of God. Uh, this ship, I mean, this church, it's going somewhere or it's going nowhere. It's only going to go somewhere if we keep our eyes on the coxswain and follow his direction. Let's stand together.